Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Teo Podcast, The Pandemic Press. Today we have Philip Sharp, who's a veteran with three combat deployments, pasture, and a podcast host. Um, his podcast is really cool, you should check it out. It's called Rage of the Age. And he actually talks about politics, religion, economics, and history. So... He's someone who was born um, just to a poor family and um, he he was outside the immediate benefits of social elites. He served for the U.S. Army for 20 years rather than attend college after high school. So he has uh, many pedigrees. You should check his um, podcast out because you learn a lot about uh, theology as well. He is an engager of culture and ideas. The description out will be written below. And he has interviewed guests like Dr. Victor Davis Hansen and whistleblower Cassandra Spencer. He explains 20 years' experience in dealing with government bureaucracy and its tendencies. Great, because nobody ever does that. And he also has combat soldiers that knows the real abilities and lack thereof of uh, the current force. He's a pasture with a heart for his community, troubled by the self-destructive behavior being encouraged in our day. He's an author and an occasional freelance writer. Even I am, so that's a passion of mine. He's also a passionate historian, so I can't wait for you to hear his point of view, especially on Afghanistan, because he's going to explain it in terms of an officer in the army. Uh, my name is Philip Sharp. Um, I'm a 20-year veteran of the United States Army, currently a pastor for the Warrington Church of God. Um, I have a podcast called Rage of the Age, not about the anger, but like zeitgeist, you know, what's the rage of the age, you know, what's going on in the times sort of thing. <laughs> um, uh, writer of blogs, books, magazine articles, various things like that. Uh, you can please discuss about uh, what's happening in the churches in America and how has the COVID-19 crisis affected them? Uh, like many institutions and, and uh, peoples, it's had an effect on them just the same. Um, with the church in particular, uh, and I'm speaking, of course, from the perspective of the United States, from my particular vantage point, I'm sure you can find someone to disagree with it, but um, 
it seems for some reason the church was particularly targeted as an institution. And I, and I don't mean one church, but all of them uh, was targeted as a specific uh, organization that should be clamped down against in order to suppress the uh, coronavirus and to try to contain it. Uh, but it was unevenly applied. And when you are in areas that uh, <laughs> your bars are still open, but they tell you you can't meet for church because <laughs> they're stopping the virus, it, it's kind of like you're, you're picking and choosing where to apply this. I either shut everything down or you open things or uh, shopping centers are full of people. <laughs> but for some reason, the church was targeted in particular. Um, the way the church had received this, and, and when I say again, the church, I'm talking about all the denominations. Um, and it seems, although I will say that particularly, it seems the Christian churches were targeted, whereas others were not really much of a concern. They never made the news. No one knows what happened to them. I only think anybody checked on them is just for some reason, we were the chosen institution to go after. Uh, within the church, there's a there's a split concern because you have some who, you know, it's not like anyone wants the virus to go rampant. We don't want it to take out a bunch of people. Um, so how do you balance what you do as a church in regards to this epidemic? And within within that sphere, there's been a conflict of, I still know churches in our community now who do not, who have not been open since the outbreak. Now, they've, they've been either virtual or they've just ceased being a church. And it's, it's kind of sad to me because there's all kinds of organizations around me that still operate and exist and haven't stopped existing because of COVID. But it's almost like they, out of, erring for safety for uh, to such a degree they've just ceased to exist you have some churches who've ignored it <laughs> and you've had some who you know they're tr they're being safe as they can and still trying to function as they are and the problem is is it became a political issue not a health issue and once that once it enters the realm of politics at least in the united states it's um <laughs> <laughs> logic will uh, take a back seat and it's just people wanting to win something with no regard to, to how you're proceeding. Exactly. And uh, uh, why couldn't uh, some of the churches like organize some sort of virtual conference so that we could have like uh, gather together virtually if that was possible? Together, together for what? Virtually. Virtually. Yeah. Well, some have done virtual um, gatherings. I, uh, I wouldn't call it a gathering, but they connect yeah. uh, virtually through either Zoom or, or Facebook or some <laughs> some uh, had still used telephones and other different things to connect. Uh, but yeah, that's what they've gone with. And, and I guess it depends on how safe the people themselves feel, which to me is where that should be left. Hey, it, it, to force one person one way or another is kind of not helping the matter, in my opinion. 
Yeah, and uh, I have also I have also gone to the church several times because like here they I'm a Buddhist, but uh, there is no temple in France, so the only place to invoke here is the church. So you go like I've been going into the church like, um, and this is like a Catholic church. Uh, every um, I think uh, almost every Sunday um, during the start of the pandemic. And while I was going there, uh, there were incredibly like few people. There were like only maybe five people. And, right. <laughs> yeah, very really old people. And I, I was presumably the youngest. Presumably. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, and it's strange how each congregation has reacted differently. Because uh, like with the church that I pastor, we're, we've been ever since we won a legal battle here. I'm in the state of North Carolina right now. And uh, a judge sided in our favor that the governor cannot dictate to us how we run our church. And since then, we've opened. And that was last year sometime. And we've been going ever since. No problems. Most people are there. Um, but but, but so it's been a mixed result with some people. And it, it makes me wonder. The, the way we handle this, how much of it is kind of a presumed fear given to us versus the reality. <laughs> I mean, we've had one COVID case. The person isolated themselves, got through it. Um, we've known others around. I mean, there's people catching it. I'm not saying it don't exist. It does. But um, it's a sickness like other sicknesses. I got people dealing with cancer. I got people dealing with uh uh, one has hand, foot, mouth disease right now. I mean, there, there's all kinds of different, there's never a shortage of suffering going around in your community. But for some reason, this one thing has dominated every aspect of life. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is. Uh, especially like uh, the manipulation online itself. It's like um, in the news and stuff like this. I'm a, like a former medical student. So I know like the procedure of how the drugs and vaccines have been produced. So I just I just put that out uh, just so that people would understand. And it was surprising that uh, most people actually um, looked at that and they did not think twice because the news just <laughs> said that you have to take the vaccine. And now we've come to a degree that um, a lot of people, especially educated people, after, this is after one year, disagree that uh, you shouldn't take the vaccine or so, something like this because it's not doesn't prove its uh, full efficacy. Well, and and that's kind of the catch, really, isn't it? Because it's it's being produced under an emergency order. It has not gone through the usual test that a medicine goes through. So it means it's an experiment. How do you how do you gear up and force a society to participate in this experiment when you couldn't do that for any experiment otherwise? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that, that's a I mean, that should be something that is a voluntary test uh, for those participating. Yeah. Those who want the I mean, I've had the shots, but that was my decision. Yes, it, that's what others don't want it and they're afraid to. I get it. I get it. Why you don't want to get it. Yeah. it but it, the whole I mean, if you just from a medical perspective, it's frightening to me that you can 
grab up an entire society and say, you will participate in this medical experiment. <laughs> That's pretty scary to me. Yeah, it is. Uh, especially it's like the first time in history, it has been um, the political parties have been manipulating through news and um, social media to actually take it without. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and but I wonder how I, much money is behind it. That's yeah. always my question is, uh, why are you so adamant about this? Because yeah. there's a lot. It's a worldwide drug yeah. and it's being sold worldwide. And you got the whole world afraid that they have to have it. There's some big bucks involved. I'm yeah. pretty sure of it. Big bucks. <laughs> Uh, that is true. And um, uh, you said you were in the army? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, you can also tell me your views on Afghanistan as well. But before that, can you actually describe how Afghanistan was, Afghanistan was brought into this situation? And then you tell, uh, you can describe um what is it facing now and uh, at the point when Biden withdrew the his army from uh, Afghanistan and people uh, uh flew towards uh, other countries for refuge um I, I think you're asking how did we get involved in Afghanistan yeah yes um that, that was a direct result of the attack on the World Trade Centers and Pentagon uh, Al-Qaeda was basically based in Afghanistan, given shelter at the time by the Taliban government. Um, training, it, I mean, the whole nation was basically mobilized for war uh, against us and people like us. So naturally to retaliate, we went there. Um, but we didn't, we did it right first. Uh, that I'd say <laughs> we didn't go as a, and we almost never do go as a conquering nation snatching up territory we went to remove the threat which we did and we did it with the aid of a lot of other afghans we it wasn't um just the american army doing this in fact they did a lot of the fighting we provided a lot of support because they wanted rid of the taliban as much as we did um but as things go <laughs> with the mission creep we call it uh we don't leave we, we stay and then uh, we we have this faulty idea and it's a it's a great idealism from our perspective, perhaps, but we want to turn every place into the United States. Afghanistan's not. Uh, and I, of course, I, I spent time in Iraq. Iraq is is not like us. And those two nations, you can't even compare together because they're different in so many ways. You can't you can't you couldn't apply the same things in Iraq that you could in Afghanistan. But I think we tried to do a one size fits all strategy, almost out of mental apathy, in my opinion. I don't know. Um, and, and we've been there 20 years. And, and of course, as we've seen, like almost instantly, the place crumbled under the vision we had for it the minute we pull out. 20 years. I mean, how long do you need to, to turn a place around? It's crazy. Uh, we built our nation in less time and we were fighting each other tooth and nail uh, in the beginning. A lot of nations start this way. Why did this one just crumble? And, the, and I think the big reason is, is uh, from a strategic position and, and, and politics has to be involved. The, 
in the West, I think we have a difficulty in mixing political strategy with military strategy. We, we're really good at the military side, very efficient at it, but we're stupid when it comes to politics sometimes. We don't know how to collaborate the strategies. And when you got, in our nation, when you have two sides fighting over every little mistake or success to claim as their own or blame somebody, it ties the hands of commanders to actually get the job done. And when you have that for 20 years of just, just do, you know, if you look at the, the command system, if you will, a commander shows up, they do a year, they go home, right? Maybe two, you know, if you're a bigger commander, two or three years, and then you go home. If you can survive without embarrassing yourself or your bosses, it's called a success. You go home. Are you trying to actually win? Are you trying to actually accomplish anything? Maybe, maybe not. All I know is that you don't have to and still be called a success. That's been our problem. We didn't know where our objective was once we achieved our objective, if that makes sense. We got rid of the Taliban. We dispersed Al-Qaeda. We had them on the run. And then we were like the dog that caught the car. Now, what do I do that I caught it? We didn't think beyond. I know we'll make it to the United States. I mean, that just that was not a very sensible thing. And it shows that 20 years, there's been a, a huge decline. And this is my personal opinion, having been in the service uh, as, as an infantryman. I believe there is a serious leadership problem in our military. I believe there is a serious discipline problem in our military. And the politics around it right now does not help. Yeah, they should be teaching how to collaborate because now is not the time to like <laughs> kill each other. We're not ready for another war. Absolutely. We never really are ready. Honestly, we're a democracy. We don't live on a war footing. Thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, but in the in that time, you, you, the, we should have our brains that are in command preparing for those events. That's their job. And then be able to to work within the nat, you know, whatever the nation mobilized. But to we should, yeah, we should prevent that from happening at all costs because there are lives going to be at stake. Millions. But there's there's a lot, and it's not it's the lives of the soldiers, but it's also the lives of the people in those nations. Yes. A lot of those Afghan, like we've been at 20 years, some of them grew up and were all they knew as the power structure there, which was another mistake in my opinion. Now we pull out, it's like we ripped the carpet from under them. And now they're left to these guys that don't like them because they work with us and we're not there to do anything about it. The whole, it should have never been set up like that in the first place. So was the Taliban's rapid victory expected or not expected? <laughs> Isn't that the question? Yeah. I believe, I mean, even the president said this and he was probably brief to say this because he doesn't, I don't think he knows what he's saying himself. The attitude is, is everyone expected it to fall. They were just caught off guard that it was this fast. So they purposely left knowing that it was going to crumble and did it anyway. But then it embarrassed them because it happened like that. <laughs> and it totally caught them off guard. They knew it. And I don't think they just figured it out this year. I believe they saw it wasn't going the way they wanted for years. And they were just trying to figure out how it comes down to this. Who do we get to blame for? And it can't be me. 
<laughs> and how do we get out with the most honor intact? That's that's pretty much. And we've been doing that since Vietnam. We have got to stop that and just revamp our strategies because this is really stupid. And, you know, especially when the soldiers who go over there, I've seen many of them complain to me. Why did I go there? What were we doing? And, I mean, how do you answer that question? Because and yeah, and we were still sending soldiers there for years, knowing it's not going to work. Why? And if it, so you got two options. You know, it's not working. Get out of there or change what you're doing. So it works. We did neither. We just sat there afraid to fail. That's the problem. We go into a thing afraid to fail, never trying to win it. That, that's always been our problem. So why couldn't the Afghan forces better resist the Taliban despite all the U.S. training and assistance? Question too. And because I compare it as a, you know, I study military history quite a bit. And I compare it to the Soviet withdrawal. The irony is, I think they were they were a hated occupier far more than we were. I mean, they, they came in and just <laughs> they're your, they're your typical conqueror, you know, right? <laughs> Not like us. They weren't loved. When they left, that regime stood for a while. Ours collapsed instantly. We technically have better training and equipment than the Soviets did. So what went wrong? That's a that's a very good question to consider. Um I wish I knew the answer to that, but it, it would seem at some point the Afghans had to realize they were fighting for themselves. I think the leaders that caved in the Taliban planned to do that from the beginning. The ones under the Soviet occupation, they knew they couldn't collaborate with the Taliban. They had to fight. The Taliban, I think, were very clever politically. And, you know, hey, we're not going <laughs> to we can come to an agreement sort of coexistence thing here to not slaughter everybody. Well, if you do a few people, but you know, not you <laughs> sort of thing. And uh, it was an easier transition. Whereas, you know, under the Soviets, those people had to fight to the death basically. And of course you had those who did fight. And, and that's something that's not necessarily well known in Afghanistan. You had units that did fight and they fought well, but the, the overall, Overwhelming army itself just gave in because it never intended to fight in the first place. This is why I think that's the case. We did all the fighting. We hope they would pick it up, but why should they if we're doing it? Why are they in the army? They get paid. Why do they want our equipment? Because we'll give it to them. <laughs> and as long as we'll keep doing that, they will act incompetent and in unable because we're going to go in and rescue them every time rather than demand, you have to pick up this fight. We're going to leave you, you had to pick it up, right? But again, I don't think we should have even gotten to that point, uh, strategically speaking. Once you, you put a presence there in a place like Afghanistan with the history that it has, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> you, you know you can't stay long, right? So you should have never planned to stay long in the process, what was you thinking? You go do it, you get out. You let them sort out their own life, just like you do anywhere in the world. Why there? Why, why don't we invade other nations that are in far worse turmoil and make them act behave, right? You, you can't. Why there? 
it's it's something with this mentality of mission creep. You get started and it's like you don't want to leave. Some of that's military's fault, but a lot of it's the politics fault too. Yeah, and uh, they need to also like feed their families as well through the through the ammunition because they um, Afghan is running out of ammunition uh, without the U.S. And, and that's that's the travesty. Yeah. I mean, to me, the other reason that the Soviet-backed army stood for a while is because they expected they were still going to get support. That Afghanistan, that the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan failed when the Soviet Union failed, when its support gave out. Then it failed. Militarily, it was still hanging on. We pulled out and we could still support them, but it was almost like you're on your own. That was the message we sent. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, crazy. You, you prep them for the fight. You haven't really had them doing the fighting. And then all of a sudden you're like, all right, you're on your own. And you wonder, okay, are you going to give us, you know, we, the departure was was rushed and it was all picked on random dates. Why pick September 11th as being out by that day? Because it's a cool anniversary date. 20 years we got out. Yay for me. It's a political approach. It had nothing to do with military strategy. Absolute travesty. Not received well in Afghanistan. Our military is probably upset by it. And of course, now the nation sees, you know, what in the world just happened here? Yes. Was this a chaotic ending in Afghanistan uh, inevitable? Uh, well, as far as what we could have done about it, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a religious man, so I'll, in the end, I say that this is what God intended to come about anyway, no matter what we did. Yeah, but you you don't have to, he doesn't have to force us to do it. We kind of do it for him anyway. <laughs> so we're at fault not God, but nonetheless, you know, <laughs> it was going to happen, but it's, I mean, if, if we're looking at just from the perspective of lessons learned what to do, not to do, there's obvious things we could pick out from this that on our own efforts, we need to do better. What can we learn from the situation uh, that happened over there and how can we improve uh, to be better? Mm -hmm. We have, to get our, we have to know what we want to do before we get there. That To me, that if you don't do that, yeah. you've opened the door to, it's like, it's like an ADHD commander just randomly deciding, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And you forget what you're doing over there. I mean, I don't know how people, <laughs> I mean, people I run into my own nation with troops deployed over there, didn't even know, oh, wait, we're still over there. I mean, that's kind of how it became. It's just, we forgot. <laughs> I mean, there was no real, yeah. there's no real objective. Yeah. The, the objective was to get the Taliban and to get Osama bin Laden, right? Yeah. We did that. But then it was like, well, now, like I said, now it's like we did it, but we, it's like we couldn't, we, why couldn't you? I, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, we, we, we create an atmosphere of dependency on the forces we support where they can't operate on their own. That's the other problem. And part of it is uh, the, the military, and this is a hard, this is not going to be a hard thing to fix because in the military, you have, you have guys who train their whole lives to do this. Here's their opportunity. 
they want to get in the fight. I know this is weird for some people to hear, but they want to get into the fight. They want, they want to go and slay that dragon. They want to test themselves. And they go, and, and here's their opportunity. So we go do it, and we're not thinking, hey, we also have to bring along these people who are actually going to take over this fight someday. But once you get involved in it, it's almost like it's your fight, not theirs. Fighters look for the fight. <laughs> but that's why you need smarter politicians to say, hey, this is our goal. Accomplish this goal. And then we got to pull out of here because the army will fight as long as you have to fight. <laughs> that's just what it does. That's what it existed in. But we had no national goal objective to know that hey we're accomplishing something we've been there 20 years no idea if what we're doing is working or not why because we didn't know what we were trying to accomplish other than well if it looks like the united states we did it right not knowing if that's even going to work there <laughs> I mean, I, and i don't think it did so what are the steps are needed uh, now the to deal with afghanistan yes yes oh man I don't know because, I mean, obviously our current administration has washed its hands of it and as if that was a victory and they don't want to be involved in it. Uh, the international communities, we're, we're stunned. No one knows. And this is one of those moments where no one's going to take initiative because it's an embarrassing situation. And the things that are done are going to be half measures and kind of everyone kind of covering and protecting themselves. And in, and in the long run, though, what's going to happen is, is the nation of Afghanistan is going to suffer. And this time, no one's going to be willing to want to do anything about it because of the experience we just had that just passed. You follow what I'm saying? Now, now what, we, what we should do? <laughs> oh, that's a huge question. That's a huge question. And it, but it must be tied with what's the, what's, those who can do anything, what are they going to do? I fear that they're not going to do anything. They're just going to let it run its course, hoping that the Taliban don't hurt them. I mean, that's basic. If we, if we appease them, they'll leave us alone. That's the idea. But the, the, the mindset of them is they see this as a victory. They're not going to stop. And they're going to kick up that machine again to cause the trouble that started this in the first place. If we come to grips with that, hopefully soon. If, if not, it's it's going to be ugly when it breaks, I think. Yeah, uh, and there, there has to be, like, steps needed for humanitarian needs, and there should be, like, safe exit doors uh, for those in danger. And uh, a process for building a long-term condition-based uh, framework for countries uh, considering Afghanistan's needs as well. And... Um, and it should be, there should be some bilateral uh, diplomacy, constructive work um, in the UN Sec uh, Security Council and other international groupings as well. Direct the thing to me, though, is the how do you pull that off is the question. Yeah. I mean, we all want that. We all want their security, their peace, their, uh, you know, we want them to eat, <laughs> basic needs being met. But you're not dealing with people who think like this. You're dealing with the Taliban. <laughs> you're dealing with other groups that now are flocking there because they see it as a sanctuary. It'll be like every other time the UN gets involved. 
we they send food and supplies ends up getting stolen by the warlords who use it for their own side and the private to their enemies. <clears throat> and it's almost like the UN funds a war still rather than end it. But not knowing what to do, it's like, well, we have to send aid, but there's no fist <laughs> to make the aid go where it's supposed to go, which requires, again, a deployment, which no one wants to do. That's the pickle we're in now. Will Russia, China, and Iran try to make geostrategic gains? Oh yes, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They'll look. They'll try. They'll try to do what we did and look like the savior. <laughs> they come in for their various objectives and goals and reasons, uh, and they actually border that region, whereas we do not. They had more interest in it than we did. Uh, they're they're going to try to corner every, you know. That other guy that we said would leave you, he left you, but we're here. It's that approach, right? And that's and that was, again, politically speaking, the sound work by the Taliban. Hey, we're going to be here when the Americans leave. That that undermined the government's morale from the beginning. Um, and, of course, true to what they say, we left. <laughs> Trying to build an infrastructure to stand and we're going to pull out from it. That's kind of scary to be a part of, right? But, hey, we're your neighbors. You got you got Pakistan there, uh, which has always been involved. You you have Iran, which has always been involved. China's been involved even during the Soviet era. Uh, they all want a piece of it, <laughs> and they're going to get uh, they're going to get things through those channels. It's it's not going to be a neat fix that I'm sure of. It's not going to be a a world council. This is the best thing to do. Let's make it happen. Because if that was the case, we wouldn't need the world council. People would act sensible. But we don't. <laughs> People don't act sensible. They take advantage of each other. They use leverage. They 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 appear one way and act another. And and that's really the, the travesty of, of what's going on there. Can the U.S. still work with them on uh, Afghanistan? Work with Afghanistan? Yeah. I don't know. Even if an administration wanted to, you'd have a good part of the country saying, "Why are you working with the Taliban?" <laughs> I mean, that, that's going to be a different, difficult, um, and especially if they do something crazy, it's going, how do you associate with such a government? You can recognize it, but not work with it. I mean, the political necessity to make you do things you don't want to do all the time, apparently, but, um, it's hard. The, and then the trick is, is you have to make, a connection with the people of Afghanistan without really endorsing their government. That That's worldwide. Whoever you work with, you have to let them know, we're not at war with you. We don't like them, <laughs> right? We don't like what they do to you. We don't like what they do to the world setting. Uh, we, we have to always have that. When you come out and say, well, we reject, we won't work with Afghanistan. If you say it the wrong way, it can be taken of, we, we ain't going to work with any of the people. But in Afghanistan, it's not even a nation, really, so to speak. Geographically on the paper, drawn out by other people, they're a country. But in that country, you have various ethnic makeups and tribes, tribal allegiances, and various organizations fighting each other. They don't have a nation like many of us comprehend a nation. They really don't. And in their minds, they're still... Uh, they're Pashtun or, or Tajik or whatever. 
or I'm from this tribe before they even think of themselves as Afghan. That's something we're kind of imposing on them. And again, we're trying to make something fit that wasn't going to fit in the first place. Uh, they have to go through their own, pro this is my personal thinking, is they have to go through their own personal, if I may use the word modernization, <laughs> right? It's still a process regardless. Maybe that don't work for them. <laughs> yeah. Who am I to say, hey, you should give up your tribal systems and form a democracy? Maybe it don't work for them. Maybe they don't want it. They have years of not trusting each other. That's what caused a lot of conflict there anyway. But to go in and say, hey, we'll create this government and it'll make Afghanistan be a certain way was foolish from the beginning because it's ignoring the demographic makeup and of all the people within the borders of that country. Do you think the people who took uh, refuge uh, from like countries like France uh, have better lives um, since they did it like quick and fast? Those who escaped, you mean, yeah. who got out? Yeah. Do they have better lives now? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> stay over there and be hunted down. Or they live in another place that, you know, you can assimilate into, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think most of them, and I'm trying not to sound mean yes. about this, but that is kind of part of another reason why it fell apart. Yes. Many people work with us in hopes of becoming a U.S. citizen. That's their goal. Yes. Not to necessarily build their own nation. So that when we pull out, they all want to come with us. We basically take our allies with us, if that makes any sense. We're not, there's no nation building. It's like citizen hunting almost in a way, but we're not trying to find them. They find us. And, and I'm fine, you know, and, and I, I fully believe that it's a travesty if we, that we have left people there that put their faith in us. And just because we wanted to meet some arbitrary deadline, because it, was a cool little anniversary date was a, a cruel injustice to them to leave them in that scenario, regardless of what brought them to us. Some of them could have been working for 20 years with us and we couldn't bring them out of that danger that that's even if you're heartless and don't care about them, strategically speaking, that's stupid. The next group of people are not going to trust you. Hey, Honestly, they shouldn't have trust us in some ways because we've done that to the Kurds with Iraq. You know, we, we've left them hanging once the, the first war was over. Uh, and we've done that with other people. It's like when you, when it's no longer, when you, it seems that when you're no longer useful, well, you're not useful. You're not, we're not, we're not your best chums anymore, uh, which is the way of the world. But I believe we're the United States. We should be more exceptional because of the principles, not, not because we're a superhuman race, but because of our principles. You don't you don't treat people like they're in the they're in the lurch and you left them there. It, that rubs me wrong. They, they were allies. They were they trusted us and we abused that trust. You do that. I don't care where you go to try to do, quote unquote, nation building, which I don't agree with as a strategy. It's not going to work. You'll have those who will work with you to get an advantage to try to come to the States and everyone else just won't trust you. And 
but nonetheless, leaving them there was was a really bad move, really bad. Yeah, because I thought that they should have like stayed longer once I heard the news that uh, President Biden withdrew them. Yeah, yeah. Commander-in-chief decisions that should have been made that weren't. Why? Because they washed their hands. No no matter the outcome, we wash our hands of it. But you can't. You have the blood on your hands. You can't just wipe it off. It it made no sense. We could have gone back in, established some order, continued the withdrawal, but all because you had to make an arbitrary date. That you didn't have to set. Things should be set by conditions, not a time frame. I can't order my day by time half the time and get it right. Can you imagine trying to run a nation on a time frame? <laughs> I mean, you have to go by things accomplished stages. I mean, every every military commander commander knows this, and it's given by. And of course, you put time standards on it. But if you've commanded at any level, you understand that sometimes stuff don't happen at the time it's supposed to happen. That's why you have contingencies. That's why you understand the commander's intent. So if things are going crazy, you still try to accomplish the intent. You expect things to go wrong if you've been in the military long enough. If you've been in politics long enough, you expect things to go wrong. Now, when you put a hard line this time, Either you're an idiot or you don't care. That, that's my honest conclusion. And uh, moving on to what is the uh, actual uh, current uh, American mindset to religion and uh, potential effects? Fix is a strong word, huh? <laughs> uh, uh, well, from, from what I observe, and of course, this isn't like my magical observation. I know all this is. This is um, a consensus of many uh, ministers and observers as well as my own. Uh, but there's, there's, a, there's a religious mindset in America, and I, and I would include the Western world, basically, because the mindset bleeds over. Uh, religious, but not. <laughs> there's a desire to fulfill the religious soul without religion <laughs> if, if that makes any sense it's uh we want it but we don't and which is totally ironic because regardless of a religion whatever it is you know if it's classified as a religion there, there's a few elements to it to any of them that make it so but you, we have many who are following religion. I mean, they can be even involved in religion, you know, churches or organizations or whatever, and say they're religious and still not be religious. It's almost like a self-deception. Uh, and this is based upon a few things. The, the primary thing is this idea of submission. <laughs> That's required really in any religion is submission. That's totally been removed. You set your own guidelines, almost like a, a drive-through at a fast food restaurant. I want a number twelve, um, this religion, but not that religion, and make it a double. You know, make it a go large. <laughs> and, and next week, I'm bored with that. Well, I'll try a number three this week. There was no real submitting to anything at all. But we, <laughs> the. 
like in this nation, most pe most people in polls say they believe in God. And a lot of them say that they're religious or spiritual is a word too that's used a lot. But they don't submit to nothing. It's a random picking and choosing of <laughs> I mean, you can stack and build your own religion. Now, if you do that, is it a real religion? I mean, to me, the answer is no. You, if you if you <laughs> if it's a religion you kind of piece together because you personally have a good feeling about it how is that legitimate right it, it, the idea of a religion is, is you you are surrendering to something bigger than yourself that usually has a divine element or an, an, a controlling element of some kind greater than you that you're trying to be in sync with that's totally removed <laughs> altogether and yet the deception is, is I'm spiritual and it's, well, it's humorous, but it's not. But I, I ask that question when people tell me, Hey, you know, well, they, they're like, I'm spiritual. And I go, well, what does that mean? And they can't answer that question. They, they, they dumbfound themselves. I, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know what spiritual is. It's, it's not about like being spiritual. It's not about uh, being religious. I don't think it's be, uh, being religious. It's like accepting that we are, beings that exist on a multi-dimensional plane and uh, yeah and uh, there is uh, some kind of superior being it is it um, there's something that is superior accepting that there's something superior that's why things happen for a reason that's why some things that are happening uh, uh, you can't explain it right well, exactly and, and there is those elements that bring people towards the religion aspect, they, they, they sense there's something there, but what's not, what's not being sought after as far as my view is concerned is, is we're looking not for the truth and therefore putting ourselves into subjection to the truth. We're looking for something to validate our truth and give it a religious significance. It's almost like oh, we've yeah. invaded and taken over the idea of religion and we've basically made it like a god to protect secular philosophy if i can put it that way that is uh, really deep <laughs> <laughs> these are things i think about all the time in my head it's uh... <laughs> even i do sometimes like i journal my thoughts in a book like i've been doing it ever since i was 11. Yes, because I don't, I do not like I, I was raised in a culture that we can't speak back to our parents. So every time I ask questions and everything, they will think of it as a, a way to disrespect them in some way. And yeah, <laughs> in my heart, like I never intend to disrespect them in a way. It's just that, <laughs> it's just that they take it that way. Uh, whether and I'm doing it unintentionally and they think I'm doing it intentionally right. so I decided to write all down all my thoughts so that's why like for me speaking to someone and actually talking about it is kind of new because everybody are only speaking about it on a shallow level of understanding and not going so deep into it and I find out that especially when some of them actually get to know a, a person, they only have this shallow idea of them. 
Absolutely. And, and, and uh, that's kind of how we approach religion, at least in the, in the United States. It's a shallow knowing. <laughs> I, I know of it. It's enough. And, and then I you know, piece together different things to it. When the question is, you're talking about, you believe in someone that you're saying is God. They're God. You don't know anything about them. You don't want to know anything about them. Do you want to make sure you're on the right terms with God? I mean, there's all yeah. these things you should be asking, and you're like not. I said, <laughs> like, like I said, people are asking the wrong questions, Wait, especially yeah. during this pandemic. What? And and it doesn't help when well, like with like you mentioned with the the COVID thing, when you have a worldwide finger hold of the news, if you will, the, the, the app apparatuses of influence, when they can be put into the hands of a few people and put out there what you will see. And, you know, obviously people use that to control thought. I think part of it is being used to do that when it comes to these questions we're talking about. Certain things are made sacrosanct because this big group or this little group with this big apparatus tells you so. And it seems that most people won't ask the deeper questions be, below the surface, a superficial TV image. I mean, I don't get it because for me, it came easy. When I saw something on TV, I'm like, well, it's not real. <laughs> it's a show. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you know, uh, like I, when I go to the, they still have what we call tabloids in our stores. We know they're fake, but people buy it to read it anyway. That baffles me. It's like, you know, it's fake. You know, they're making, they get a picture of some star, you know, whatever. It's just so unflattering. And then they make some stupid headline and story about what they did. And, you know, it's not true, but people buy it anyway. Why? It's, it's like, you don't want to know the truth. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe everybody has, are so comfortable living a lie that they actually, because it's more harder to find the truth than actually because it takes more effort to find the truth yeah and and if, if i may bridge the gap here yeah. that's what happened in afghanistan i guarantee you that there was you had leaders and soldiers who could have told you what was going on wrong they might have even given you ideas how to fix it but you had people who didn't want to hear it because they had already decided what they wanted to be true and ignored suppressed it you, you know like some have come out recently, you know, like, you know, a battalion commander in the Marine Corps, you know, has expressed <laughs> his frustration and he got, he got rid of his command instantly. But I, I've, I've seen other uh, social media posts of different officers who are not supposed to be doing these things, making other statements, nothing ever happened to them, right? It's because when some people get fixed on, I want this to be the conclusion to be true, they immediately sort out anything that challenges that. And, and to me, that's the same when it comes to this, uh, you know, the, the concept of, of a religious faith is the, the suppressing of what you don't want to hear with regards to what it is. This, and this isn't peculiar to one group or one religion, one church, anything. This is done all around. Yeah. But yeah. in my head, if I have to suppress you to be right, maybe I'm not right. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Uh, if I'm afraid of what you say, am I, what am I afraid of? That it's true? Because I'm, I'm not afraid of, you know, <laughs> if you, here's the way I see it. If you convince me I'm wrong and I see the truth, then I have to accept the truth. If you don't, okay, you didn't, <laughs> right? Is our goal still to pursue the truth or no? But it doesn't seem like many of us want to pursue that truth. It, we have a preloaded truth that because must it's be comfortable. True. It's too comfortable it living too in comfortable. a life. Yeah. Well, and accepting the lie is too comfortable because when you start to accept that this is not what you want, then it then your whole environment starts becoming like a like you are in a pit. Or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a challenge and you're fighting. <laughs> well, it's, it's, like what, it's like what Jesus said that, you know, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yeah. But he's also the same guy that warned that when you do that, you will have people turn against you. You will have family turn against you. You will have society come at you. They hated me because I spoke the truth. They're definitely going to hate you when you speak the truth. Yeah, I, I have. So, there's a comfort level that, there for yeah. sure. <laughs> I had that sort of experience uh, that is kind of normal for me now because it's like threatens it's I, it's for some degree threatens their kind of whole life it's um and you and this is why I keep on asking my parents and like I have this I ask them a lot of questions and they don't want to go to that extent so when I was like when I was young I was constantly asking questions and all I got was insults <laughs> very encouraging <laughs> Matt, can i ask where you're from uh i'm from sri lanka sri lanka okay yeah there's a i we have a lady in our congregation who is from new delhi india and, and came over to the states some years ago we're expressing same scenario she's has problems with family and and other things because of the route she's taken and it's a very troubling thing to deal with, you know, when you got to go through because that's your whole world when you grow up, you know, that's you, your yeah. family and everything around you. And then also <laughs> yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, it's been happening throughout my life. So now it has become normal for me and accepted for what it is, but I had to like go on this path because it really challenges me and it really shows me what I should know. And like, what I should accept as the truth because I don't accept this kind of whole idea. And this is how the world is kind of like built. It's like a game. It's like for those who get it, actually. And it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can go like down the part of their destiny. Yeah. It's a serious game. <laughs> it's yeah. with some serious consequences. Yes. <laughs> like talking Hunger Games type of game <laughs> or something. It's a human game. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i've ta taken into account like uh instead of uh, uh getting revenge like most people would do yeah it's to consider it as a game and the person who wins is the one person who keeps all of their inner peace instead of exerting all of the anger on someone else inner peace that's a tough thing to find too <laughs> and that's and and that's what i that's you know you know speaking of the religion in the united states 
from my observation, the observations of many others is, is um, despite all the searching and the piecing together of what I want, I mean, I mean, we got like, I had to constantly correct people around me that they throw out the word karma and they don't even know what it really means. It's like, Ooh, karma got you back. And I'm like, well, karma, you know, the, the, the concept is, is you're living out now what you did in your past life. You're paying for it now. So that's not karma. You're, you're using, you're mixing a Christian principle. You reap what you sow. That's a Christian principle, but you're calling it karma, which is not the same principle <laughs> in yeah. this setting. And, but people mix stuff all the time, but here's what I've noticed, regardless of how they mix it to their own suiting, they're not happy, still depressed, still looking for some, still not say the, 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 if I could say the gods they created aren't working and they're frustrated. And we have, I mean, in my man, this is just from my memory and the older people tell you, you know, even more so. We, we have more at our fingertips and advantages and material blessings than we've ever had in human history here in the United States. We literally can just have what we want and get it in minutes if we wanted to, if, if we were, you know, if you wanted to exert the effort to get it. You don't find that around the world. But even though we have that and we, and we can kind of piece our own religions together, no one's happy. Everyone's frustrated and angry and just, Everything sets them off. And I'm like, what are you complaining about? <laughs> right? Why are you not content? And and I think the lack of the contentment is, is we're not rooting anything we get in truth. It's based on something we want to create for ourselves. And that's where it for me it goes wrong. <laughs> the what goes wrong? Uh when people decide to take it for their own kind of uh because <laughs> i mean the very again the very idea of the religion is is you are submitting to something greater than yourself that's the essence of of religion uh and of course i mean you can go the well which one do i pick well to me that's the point seek the truth seek right the truth. if you don't know look for what's true right yeah. you know i mean okay well that one weirds you out well why all right why doesn't that one okay it, it fancy word epistemology how do you know what you know is true that that's because i I'm a, I'm a christian but i did not grow up in a christian home you could probably say i grew up in a very heathen home <laughs> right yeah and, i what i do is like uh i am I, I am a buddhist i was born into a buddhist home but what i was doing is i was like learning about other religions as well and like trying to right. connect the dots all together <laughs> yeah, but but Eventually, I just, I, I came accepting a faith I didn't want to accept just because it seemed everything kept pointing to it. Like, like the Bible's definition of faith is not the world's definition. The world calls faith like um, uh, believing in something that you can't prove because you want to believe in it. That's kind of like the world's definition of faith. Whereas the scripture tells us yeah, it's yeah. it's the substance of things hoped for. So it's actually something tangible and it's the evidence, actual evidence of things that you don't see. You know, it's there not because you see it, but because of the other evidences that point to it. And the greatest example I can think of that is an atom. To, to my knowledge, to this very day, we have not laid eyes on an actual atom and know what it actually looks like, despite all the 
scopes we can make, but we know it's there. And back in the day when they were trying to split an atom, they didn't know what one looked like. They had competing graphs and charts of what. Yes, I think they just they didn't see it. Yeah. But the evidence was pointing that there's something there and we're going to call it an atom. And, and, and if you want to be obstinate about it, we'll show it to me. If you can't show it to me, it's not there. But if that's your attitude of God, then that would you apply that to the you know scientists who are looking for an atom yeah. that we never saw, that you couldn't empirically observe directly? It was like shapes. They were given like hypothetical shapes just to yeah. the theory. We're shooting in the dark, but we were shooting that direction because all the evidence was pointing okay. to something called an atom. And we knew it was real when we split it. <laughs> Boom. It's there, right? Yes. To me, it's the same way with God. When when yes. you split that, you, all the evidence points to him. And when you strike him, <laughs> yeah, boom, it's like, whoa, revelation. That's that's faith as the Bible describes it. That's what it's not. I want to because that's what everybody's that's what I'm saying about religion in the States is, is everybody's making a religion of their own structure to suit them. But it's not based on any real evidence there's other than personal preference but if you look at all the evidence pointing to this invisible god it's the same as pointing to an invisible atom you know it's there you can't see it but everything points to it and that's basically the basic definition of faith knowing that god is thank you for listening in to teo podcast of pandemic press I want you guys to spread this around. This podcast is important during the pandemic. It really educates yourself so you don't have to like read more books. But if for those who want to dig deeper, have all the resources that they need. And it's all linked at the description below. I'm doing this for a cause and I hope um, humanity would actually see and read the benefits benefits of this podcast because it's really targeted towards everything you have to know during the pandemic. I appreciate if you could share this with your um, friends and so that they could listen as well and make sure you subscribe if you have an iPhone and you're listening in through iTunes. We are available on any device and almost every podcast website out there. We are well known, um, but I think we could do better, especially for next year. We have bigger goals. So I'm your host, Rashni Heva Wasam, and I am signing out.